is in some sense God's deed. But we may think of God as normally doing things in regular ways, entirely in accordance with the nature of the universe that he has made, thus making modern science possible. And we may think of God occasionally doing something in an extraordinary way, out of step with the nature of the universe he himself has established. We should not think of a miracle as something that occurs when God intervenes to do something for a change, it being tacitly understood that ordinarily does nothing. Rather, we should think of a miracle as what takes place when God does something highly unusual. A miracle, something that takes place when God does something highly unusual. So, that begs the question, when does God do something highly unusual? Again, if you look at the record of the Bible, you discover something quite interesting. That miracles are not scattered randomly through the Bible and through the history of humankind. In fact, if you look at the record of the Bible, you will discover that the miracles in the Bible most of them are clustered around three major events in history, three key periods when God acts. The first concerns the Exodus, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and God brought these terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his people. The second is the period we're looking at of Elijah and his successor, Elisha, when it looked as though the future of God's people was about to be finished under the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And the third and greatest cluster of miracles occurs around the life of Jesus, God's Messiah, and his rescue plan of salvation for the world. And in each case, these miracles serve a purpose. They authenticate a particular person, the messenger whom God has sent, to let people know that he really comes from God. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and if you know your Bible, you'll know that these are three very key figures, key people whom God uses. So, miracles are not the norm. And this case that we read here is an exceptional occurrence. So, let's zoom in a little more closely at the event itself, and let me make a second statement, a second clue, which I call an explicit promise. Look again at the Bible in front of you. After Elijah makes his dramatic announcement in the court of King Ahab, verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word, he disappears from public view. No matter what resources the king possesses, there is nothing he can do about the drought until Elijah says so. And Elijah can only say so when the Lord says so. So some three years later, if you've got the Bible, if you look at verse 1 of the next chapter... After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, in that intervening period, three, three and a half years, Elijah is kept safe. Not only from the king and his designs, but also from the drought and its effects. It's very ironic, is it not, that Elijah prays that it will not rain, and as a result, the brook from which he's getting water, eventually dries up. We thought last week about how sometimes we maybe need to pray for drought in the lives of people who, whose lives are so comfortable that they don't think they need God. And sometimes when we pray for these things, we get involved in the result of that. We too suffer. We're not exempt from these effects. We're not even exempt from death. 
But Elijah is, not because he's more meriting than any of the other 7,000 Israelites who have not bowed to Baal, but because his life and future is tied up with the Lord's word which cannot fail. The Lord preserves the life of Elijah as he obeys the word of the Lord. And when at the Lord's command he goes to stay with the widow in Zarephath, her life and that of her son are then included in the Lord's protection and preservation of Elijah, included in the promise, providing she will trust the word of the Lord. That's what the story is about. You know the story, if you grew up in Sunday school, it's a wonderful story. This widow woman gathering sticks for a final meal for herself and her son. And the prophet comes along and says, make me a meal. It seems contrary to logic. But Elijah reassures her, look at verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home, do as you said, but first make a small cake of bread uh, for me from what you have, bring it to me, then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry, until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She exercises faith by doing as the prophet commands, trusting that his word is the word of the Lord, that the promise that Elijah makes is a promise for her. So she went away, verse 15, did as Elijah told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. But then comes the test of her newfound faith. When her son falls ill and his condition deteriorates, we're not told at all what Elijah did while this was going on. I think we can be pretty sure that he prayed. Surely he didn't sit there. I'm sure he prayed for the boy, but to no effect. Eventually, the boy stops breathing. Now notice where the woman places the blame, with Elijah reasoning that the presence of this man of God, who brings God's presence into her home, God's holy presence, exposes her sin, and therefore she has been punished with the death of her son. So she says to Elijah, verse 18, What if you have... What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, Elijah does not say, as he could have said, and I'm sure some of us would have said, Lady, if I had not come here, you and your son would long have been dead. Nor does he try to correct her flawed theology. Rather, he takes the matter, he takes the boy to the Lord in prayer, for this is a test for his faith as well as that of the woman. As he cries out to the Lord, Verse 20, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? God had promised life. Now here is death. It contradicts the promise that God has made. And therefore, in that confidence of that promise, Elijah then stretches himself out on the boy three times and cries out, Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. We can only speculate on his action and why he did this particular thing and I don't intend to spend your time rehashing ancient and learned articles and books about why he laid on the boy. But what we can be sure is the basis of his appeal. The explicit promise of the Lord, life to this boy and his mother for the duration of the drought, as long as the drought lasts, until the Lord gives rain, life is promised. And that is why the Lord answers the prayer and restores the life of the boy in answer to Elijah's prayer as he promised. And so the second clue to this is why does Elijah pray with confidence, a prayer of faith, assured that God will hear because it is contained within the promise that the Lord makes. 
He does not, as many people would do today, then set up a ministry of resurrection life and people queue at the door with their dead family to be restored to life. We don't know of any other example of Elijah doing anything similar. It is not a model for Elijah, let alone for us. So Elijah carries the boy downstairs, gives him to his mother and says, Look, your son is alive. And in her response, we then discover a third clue as to why the Lord answers this particular prayer in this way, which I've called an evangelistic purpose. Now, here's a question. Uh, If you've got your Bible in front of you, why doesn't the Bible just run from chapter 17, verse 1, to chapter 18, verse 1? Let me read it. It makes perfect sense. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord lives, the God of Israel, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. What's the point in the rest of chapter 17? Why is it included? And what's the point of this particular miracle in the life of this particular woman? You see, again, there's so much in here that is contrary to what we do today in church life. Just think, this is the first recorded example that we know of, of God raising someone to life in answer to prayer. Now, if that was going to happen today, how and where would you do it? Well, you'd hire the Usher Hall or the Playhouse Theatre. You'd want the world to know that the God of Israel is the God of the whole universe. Surely it would have been more effective. There will come a miracle, as we see next week, God willing, before thousands. But this is a miracle done in obscurity. God's ways of operating are very different from ours. At present, Israel is also under a miracle, a miracle of drought, of judgment. But during this period, God is still active. It's not just a kind of blank period where nothing happens. God is always active. He is active in our lives when the dramatic things happen. He is active in our lives when we spend three years studying for an MDiv at Conwell Theological College, as John knows. He's active in our lives when it seems that, dare I say it, you're a mother at home looking after children. And every day is the same day and school started again and you're back into the routine of life again. God was active in the dark ages when, as far as I can tell in church history, nothing much happened. But God is at work in these situations. Often in the darkness and the obscurity, God is at work. And it is a learning process. Elijah is learning in obscurity that God is a God who answers prayer. So that when he stands up in public before thousands on Mount Carmel, he can confidently call down fire from heaven because he's proved God in obscurity. And maybe, this is really a sideline really, but maybe this is someone here who's living a life and you think, what's the purpose of it all? It's a discipleship period. God is using and teaching you. But God is also, and here's the wonderful thing, God is concerned for this woman. You see, it's a miracle that has an evangelistic purpose. To bring this woman to understand who the true God is. The Lord's love is shown to a woman, first of all. Women weren't very highly thought of in those days. Widow women were at the bottom of the social pile. Most amazing of all, this woman is a foreigner and even more incredible, she's a member of the community that is an enemy nation to which Queen Jezebel belongs that is trying to exterminate the worship of the one true God in Israel. 
Now, this may not seem too significant to us, but for any good Jew, it is absolutely shocking. If you know your Bible well, you may know that Jesus actually mentions this woman in his first sermon. Did you know that? If you've got a Bible, keep your finger in 1 Kings 17 and look at Luke. That's in the New Testament if you don't know the Bible. Well, it's Luke chapter, let's see, 4, page 1031. Luke chapter 4, page 1031. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching his first sermon in his home synagogue of Nazareth. The people have heard about him and they want him to do a miracle. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, he continued, Jesus, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years. There was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Then he quotes another example. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. No wonder his hearers were furious and drove him out of town and tried to push him off a cliff. The thought that the Lord their God loved foreigners was as unpalatable to them as it was to the prophet Jonah who sat down under a, a, a plant and asked God to die because he was so angry that God didn't wipe out the people of Nineveh. So the Lord brings Elijah the prophet into the life of this foreign widow woman and through him restores her sin to life, the first ever recorded resurrection. Why? For an evangelistic purpose so that she might confess. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now, if we could but see it, there is incredible encouragement in this story. Whoever you are this morning in Charlotte Chapel, however little you may think of yourself, you may be a single parent, a single mother with children. You may be a foreigner from a distant land who's having to walk in this church this morning. And the message of the Bible is that God loves you. Individuals. People who no one else thinks anything of. And God wants to work in your life. And he wants you to learn that his word is true and that he keeps his promises. And the promises that God gives to you today are not those that he gave to this woman through Elijah. As we come to the conclusion of this, I want to move forward to a greater person and greater miracles. As we've said, miracles are not everyday occurrences. Uh, and those that do occur are clustered around these three key periods. Now, the greatest of all are the miracles that cluster around the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, God's Son. And the greatest miracle that Jesus did, the final and greatest miracle that Jesus did, has some interesting parallels with this story. You know, the greatest miracle Jesus did was to raise to life a man who had been dead for four days. Not a boy, but a man. Not a son, but a brother. If you know the Gospels, his name was Lazarus. One day he fell sick, and his sisters Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, their friend and master, who they knew had the power to heal the sick. 
But on receiving the news, Jesus deliberately stayed away and waited until Lazarus was long dead and buried and only arrived four days after he'd been in the grave. Interestingly, unlike the widow in the story who blamed the death of her son on the presence of the man of God, Elijah, the sisters, both, separately, blamed the death of their brother on the absence of Jesus. Lord, they said, if you had been here my brother would not have died. Now, just turn in conclusion then to the passage itself because it's very important. John's Gospel, chapter 11, and you'll find it on page 1078. And look at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odour. He's been there for four days. This is no boy who's just expired. This is a man who's been dead in the grave. Corruption has set in. Supposedly. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, here's the prayer, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Here's the evangelistic purpose, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So to go back to where we started. Does this miracle provide a model for us to pray that the dead may be restored to life? Is that the purpose of it? Not at all if you read carefully why John has described this miracle. Why it's included in God's word. In his commentary on the book of James, Alec Motir gives a very helpful answer comparing this miracle and that of Elijah. Listen to what he says. Very often the really striking things the Bible records are intended to give a foundation to our faith rather than a model for our expectations. When we think of the many miraculous acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that they're recorded so that we may trust him, not so that we may know in every parallel or similar circumstance we may immediately expect of him. Rightly, we do not expect him to restore our dead as he restored Lazarus. But as we read the story of Lazarus, we become confident we can entrust our beloved to him who is Lord even over death itself. In miracle after miracle which he performed, we can imagine Jesus saying to us, I will do this once so that you will know that I can. After that, you must just trust me. In the same way, the story of Elijah is written for our learning. The miracle of the raising of Lazarus is what John describes in his Gospel as a sign. There are seven of them in John's Gospel. This is the last and greatest. And their purpose is not so that we might repeat the signs, do the miracles. The purpose is that the signs are signposts that point to who Jesus is and that his word is true and that his promises are reliable so that we might understand the signs and their significance. And the promise that Jesus makes is not physical life. The promise that he makes is eternal life. So at the end of his gospel at chapter 20, before the postscript, chapter 21, John says this, 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I began with a true but tragic story. Let me conclude with a true yet triumphant story told by a missionary named David Niles. Concerned some missionaries who worked for many years among a community people group in Africa. Eventually, just one family in this community came to faith in Christ. Shortly afterwards, the eldest son of this family fell seriously ill. The parents and the missionaries prayed long and hard for the child's recovery, longing for a healing which would prove to the superstitious people bound by spirits that Jesus Christ was God's son, is God's son, and can raise the dead to life. But all their efforts of prayer and medicine failed, and the boy died. Surely they thought, this is the end of our work. They will never believe us now. But to their amazement, the chief of the group came to them and said, we want to become Christians too. Why, they asked. The chief replied, we want to have a God who can make us strong to face death the way you and that boy faced it. You see, all of us one day must die. The son of the widow of Zarephath just happened to die twice. So did Lazarus. But the promise of Jesus, given first to the sisters of Lazarus, is this. The promise that I read every time I take a believer's so-called funeral, thanksgiving service. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked the sister a question, which he asked to us too. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Is that your hope? Is that your confidence? And when you pray for others, is this the life that you pray for them, for your friends and family who do not yet believe that they too may come to know him who is the resurrection and the life? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you are the God of power, the God who raised to life again our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating once for all that his work on the cross was complete and that through him and through him alone there is forgiveness and eternal